Jane Angelich carried the guilt around for more than four decades. Years ago, she had been cruel to someone and had never acknowledged her actions. Often she thought of the person she had hurt, and she wondered, had he ever forgiven her? Finally, she decided she could carry her burden no longer. She went online and looked up the person that she had mistreated over 40 years earlier, and she apologized to him for telling him to drop dead when he called her house back in 1961. They were both 10 years old at the time. Guilt has a way of hanging on, doesn't it? When something is nagging at you for 48 years, you need to clear it up, said Ms. Angelich. She's 58 years old. She's the company chief executive for a very successful pet products company in California. This is a person who has been very successful in life, but that, st- that guilt still nagged at her. The internet is giving rise to a whole new phenomenon, the decades late apology. The web allows us to locate people and converse by email. There are even websites such as thepublicapology.com and perfectapology.com where you can go and they are dedicated to helping us in our quest for absolution. Guilt imprisons people. Absolution sets them free. If guilt can cripple us in our human relationships, how much more will guilt cripple us in our relationship with God? Where do we go for absolution when we have sinned against God? There's only one place to go. Only Christ's sacrifice can remove our guilt. Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Folks, no human priest can grant you absolution. No pastor can grant you absolution. Only God can release you from the consequences of sin. Only God can forgive your sin, and he absolves us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is not religion. Our religious duties will never release us from guilt. People try to atone for their sins through religion all the time, and it doesn't work. And the author of Hebrews starts with that issue and shows us in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 10 that religious rituals cannot permanently absolve our guilt. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form, the very icon, the very image of things, can never by the same sacrifice year by year which they offer continually make perfect or complete those who draw near. Can't do it. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now remember, he is writing to Jewish Christians who were steeped in the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system. They were very religious people. And he is saying, all of that religion cannot permanently absolve your guilt. You see, God had established the Mosaic Law with all of its regulations, with all of its sacrifices. The people were required to follow many religious rituals and obligations as a part of their faith. But all of the religious rituals inherent in the law were but a shadow of the things to come in Christ. They weren't the real thing. They were not the very image or the very form of reality itself. They were a shadow cast by the form of heavenly reality. So the word for form is the word from which we get our English word icon, an image. It meant something that had the same form as something else. The Old Testament sacrifices did not even have the same image or form as the reality to be found in Christ. The Old Testament religious activities merely pictured or represented what Christ would one day do. That was what they were all about. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the Israelites gathered to worship God as the high priest would perform the annual sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. These sacrifices had value. They were beneficial. They covered the sins of the people until Christ could come. But they did not take away sin. They had religious benefit, but they did not expiate sin, to use a theological term. They were efficacious, but not expiatory. They had benefit. They covered things over for a time, temporarily. But they did not take away the guilt of the sin from inside of the people. They did not change the heart. They were not expiatory then. The author of Hebrews argues that the proof of this reality is that the people had to keep coming back year after year after year to perform the sacrifices. Every year there was a Day of Atonement, a Yom Kippur. These sacrifices were never able to make perfect or complete the absolution, that is, the setting free, the forgiving of those sins of those who drew near to God for that forgiveness. I mean, if the worshipers had been absolved of their guilt, the author of Hebrews argues, they would no longer have an awareness or a consciousness of the guilt of their sin. The fact that they continually had to come back year after year proved that they still felt guilty and therefore they had incomplete absolution. They were not completely forgiven and they knew it. The word for consciousness of sin or awareness of sin is a word that refers to human guilt. Complete forgiveness of sin, of course, does not mean that a person will not know that they sin. They will suddenly have no memory of that sin. He's not talking about that. I mean, that's impossible. We remember things. He's not talking about having no memory of the sin. He's talking about having no guilty conscience, no 
consciousness in a guilt-burdened way of what has taken place. Guilt is part of God's spiritual warning system. Just like pain in the body is a part of our physical warning system. If I have a pain in my foot, it draws attention to my foot and says, you ought to do something about the pain in your foot. Guilt does the same thing spiritually. Guilt is God's warning system telling us to address whatever the guilt is dealing with. The fact that they had to come back year after year to deal with the guilt of sin means that they were never absolved of that guilt. Just like the person who takes medicine to stay alive cannot be said to have been cured of the disease. Why did they struggle with the guilt? They had to continually deal with the guilt because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. He says it's impossible for it to take away sin. There is only temporary absolution for sin under the old covenant. In fact, every time they came to offer a sacrifice for their sins, it was in fact a reminder of the sins they had committed. That was part of the purpose of the sacrificial system. It was designed to remind them of what they had done wrong. Every time they did that blood sacrifice, it reminded them of what a mess they'd made of their lives and the sins they had committed. It was to be a constant reminder of their sin. Every time they offered a sacrifice, it reminded them that they were guilty. The old covenant then was a guilt-motivated covenant. Understand that concept. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a guilt-motivated system for dealing with sin. And that is the problem with religion in general. Religion is guilt-motivated. I mean, the more we go to church... In a religious sense, the more we feel guilty because the religious rituals don't permanently absolve our guilt. Instead, they constantly remind us of our guilt. That's what religion does. And that's why people react against religion and churchianity. The cartoon pictures a religious travel agency inviting people to ask about our special guilt trip. (laughs) Isn't that what religion specializes in? Guilt trips, right? Often people associate that whole guilt trip process with church. It's what church does. The problem with guilt is that guilt brings avoidance. People then avoid church because it makes them feel guilty. People pull back from friends because of guilt. When we do something wrong, we then avoid those we have wronged. When we sin against God, we avoid the reminders that we see in religion. So guilt then drives a wedge between us and God, and religion simply reminds us of our guilt. And that's why when we talk to people so often today, you hear, I don't want to go to church, I'll just be made to feel more guilty all over again. So guilt brings avoidance, and people avoid church, and they avoid those that they feel make them feel guilty 
about what they've done. Now that's not because guilt is wrong, especially guilt for real sin. But it is the way people respond. Author Josh Harris writes, Most of us find peace over past sins by trying to forget and move on. That's the way we cope. We find comfort in the distance that comes with the passing of time. The further we are from our sins, the less we feel they mark our lives and the less guilty we feel. Do I even remember half of the wrongs I've done in life? The truth is that I've conveniently forgotten most of my violations. We might say that oftentimes we feel forgiven, but it's really because we've forgotten what it is we did wrong. And we feel guilty all over again when we are reminded of it. A newspaper story told about a woman named Jill Price. Jill Price has a rare condition doctors call superior autobiographical memory. Jill can recall in vivid detail every day of her life since age 14 and every event of every day. Experts at the University of California studied her for six years to confirm that ability. Now, if you consider that a blessing, you might want to reconsider. (laughs) She says, it's a blessing in that she can remember some warm and wonderful things, but it is a horrible curse because she remembers in vivid detail every excruciating embarrassment, every failure, every insult, every bad decision. Over the years, Jill said the memories have eaten her up. She feels paralyzed and assaulted by them. Peaceful sleep is rare because of all the memories. So people go to church They practice religion because we want to be good people. But relative peace, but the relative peace we find is often because we have really managed to forget our sins for a while. Until church or the preacher or somebody reminds us and we feel guilty all over again. No matter what we do to absolve our guilt and By the way, guilt motivates people to do many religious things, doesn't it? But no matter what we do to absolve our guilt, we inevitably face that guilt again. Religious rituals then, this is the foundation of what he's arguing in chapter 10, cannot permanently absolve our guilt. But, and isn't that a great word to use here? You thought this whole message was going to be a real downer if all we were talking about is unabsolved sin, right? That's not the end of the story because God is writing the story. And Hebrews 10 goes on to say that the cross of Christ can permanently absolve our guilt. He came to die once for all time. To absolve our guilt. Look at verse 5 as we continue the argument here in Hebrews 10. Therefore, 
when he comes into the world, that is Christ, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He, that is Christ, takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The quotation comes from Psalm 46, which is a psalm of David's in the Old Testament. When David had sinned, and he was seeking absolution, forgiveness for his sin. Now the author of Hebrews develops a four-step argument that leads up to his point that only Christ can absolve us of sin. So let's follow that argument. He goes back, first of all, rituals alone never please God. Doesn't matter how many times you go to church, doesn't matter how much money you put in the offering plate, it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do, rituals alone can never please God. Do you understand that concept? It is foundational to Christianity. David realizes that all of the... This is the Old Testament King David writing. He realizes that all of the sacrifices, all of the burnt offerings he can perform do not please God. They aren't what God really wants. That doesn't mean they were unimportant, but they do not ultimately please God. God looks at the heart, not at the sacrifices. And all of our accomplishments, all of our activities, all of our success, and boy, guilt can drive you to be very successful in life. You understand that, right? It is a great motivator for success. But all of the success in life doesn't change the guilt inside for our failures in life. We have a a nasty way of remembering those failures despite success. Noble Doss dropped the ball. One ball, one pass, one mistake in 1941. He let a ball drop in a football game. And it's haunted him ever since. It cost us a national championship, he writes. The University of Texas football team was ranked number one in the nation. They were hoping for an undefeated season and a berth in the Rose Bowl. They played conference rival Baylor University with a 7-0 lead in the third quarter. The Longhorn quarterback launched a deep pass to a wide-open Noble Doss. The only thing I had between me and the goal line, he recalls, was 20 yards of grass. That's it. The throw was perfectly on target. Longhorn fans rose to their feet in the stadium, cheering. The sure-handed Doss spotted the ball, reached out, dropped it to the ground. Baylor rallied, tied the score with seconds to play. Texas lost their national ranking and their chance to play in the Rose Bowl. I think about that every day, Doss admits. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Noble Doss because he doesn't lack for other memories. Happily married for six decades, 
a father, a grandfather. He served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared on the cover of Life magazine. He intercepted 17 passes during his collegiate career, a university record. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles as a football player. The Texas High School Hall of Fame and the Longhorn Hall of Fame both include his name in the Hall of Fame. Most fans remember all the things that he did. He remembers the one he missed. Once upon meeting a new Longhorn coach, Doss told him about the bobbled ball that he had missed 50 years earlier, and he cried as he told the story. All the success in the world, and you still feel guilty. Failure. Isn't that powerful? And here's the problem, isn't it, when we talk spiritually now. No matter what we accomplish in life, what do we remember so often? The failures. Guilt, spiritually now, guilt can drive people to become religious zealots. It really does. Trying to atone for their sins. A guilt-driven life may accomplish much, but the person still never finds absolution or forgiveness because we can only find that where? Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do God's will. Rituals alone never please God. Success can't atone for sin. Jesus came to do God's will. This is his second step in the argument. And he uses the Psalm 46 from that David had written many years earlier as an illustration then of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do the will of God. He was obedient to all that God wanted him to do. Now, David, the original author of these words, when he wrote these words, he was talking about his sinfulness and how God wanted him to obey him and do what God wanted in his will. Well, Jesus identifies with sinners, but without sin, right? He never sinned. So Jesus came to do God's will by identifying with sinners in this world and so fulfill the will of God. He came to do God's will by being identified with us as sinners while obeying God to the fullest extent. So ritual alone can never please God. Jesus came to do God's will. The sequence of this argument is going to go back and forth, and you have to follow it for just a minute here. So now we move back to the issue of sacrifices. Animal sacrifices do not purify sin, verse 8. They cannot change you. Even when people brought a sacrifice to atone for sin, that sacrifice didn't please God. It's not that the sacrifices were wrong. Because God had instituted the sacrificial system in the law. The law is not wrong. The sacrifices were not wrong. But the law and the sacrifices cannot take away sin. Sacrifices cannot remove guilt. And that leads to the fourth step in this argument. And this is the crux. So Jesus came to die for us verses 9 and 10. Now look at those verses once again because this is where he's been leading up to in this whole somewhat complex argument from the Old Testament. 
that even in the Old Testament they should have understood that Jesus was the one who would take care of the problem. Verse 9, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. The he and the I here are Jesus. He takes away, that is Christ Jesus, takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, follow the argument very carefully because he's developed a very complex argument here. God instituted the sacrifices, but the sacrifices didn't please God. The sacrifices were not what God ultimately wanted. Then Jesus came to do God's will, and that pleased God. That means that Jesus' obedience to fulfill God's will superseded the sacrifices that came first. So Christ's covenant superseded the first covenant. Jesus removed the first contract by establishing the second one. The order is very significant. Sacrifices came first, were removed by the work of Christ when he came to die for us. Now why did Christ's obedience remove the first covenant? Why did that happen? It did this because it is by God's will that we are purified or sanctified. If Jesus fulfills God's will and through God's will we are purified, then Jesus establishes a new covenant that removed the old covenant. How? How did Jesus do that? And now he's going to get very precise. Jesus did the will of God and he purified us or sanctified us from our sins. He did that by offering his body on the cross. And the word body is the essence of the whole argument right here. Verse 10. The offering of his body, the physical bodily offering is what gave God the ability to sanctify us. Now, he's picking up on an expression all the way back in verse 5. Therefore, verse 5 says, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. And using it of Jesus Christ. Instead of the sacrifices, God prepared a body for Jesus that could be sacrificed to replace the sacrifices. It had to be that kind of a physical offering. Now, the Greek word for prepared back in verse 5 means to outfit someone, to create something, to outfit someone. God outfitted Jesus with a body, is the point, so that the body could be sacrificed. The body was divinely suited to accomplish God's will. Christ was outfitted with a body that would become the eternal sacrifice, and then he in turn offered the body on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Now hopefully you see where he was going with all of that. The picture is of Jesus and the Father standing in heaven before all of this took place. And the father turns to Jesus and he says, are you ready to go do my will? And Jesus says, I'm going to do your will. And the father then outfits Jesus with a body that can be sacrificed on the cross. So to do God's will, he did it by dying on the cross with the body that God outfitted him with. 
Christ's death on the cross was the basis for our being purified or sanctified. What does that mean? It means to be made holy. It means to be absolved of all sin. We can be absolved, forgiven of all of our sins forever. We will find that absolution, not through religious rituals or good works, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. For his blood paid for our sins. He was born to die. The body was actually what God outfitted him with so that it could be sacrificed. His body was designed for death because it is through his death that we live guilt-free. We can be absolved of our sins because of his blood. It's the only way. A Reader's Digest article of a 67-year-old man named Bill tells how he had donated 100 pints of blood over the years. And I'm sure many people owe their lives to Bill. How do you think heaven looks at that good deed or all those good deeds? Well, here's what Bill thinks. When that final whistle blows and St. Peter asks, what did you do? I'll just say, well, I gave a hundred pints of blood. That ought to get me in. Hopefully Bill was joking. If he was serious, then he believes that good deeds will get him to heaven. And he has articulated the gospel of good works and religion, not the gospel of grace. If Bill is counting on the giving of a hundred pints of blood to get him to heaven, he's trusting in the wrong blood. Christ gave his blood once for all time to pay for our sins. That payment for our sins was a one-time payment. That's it. Only once. And that one sacrifice paid for your sins and my sins, past, present, and future forever one payment that's Christianity that's why Paul in Romans 8 verse 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus how much condemnation zero zilch nothing not some condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been absolved of our sin. We find that only in Christ. So you and I don't have to live with that guilt for our sin. I don't mean that we don't remember what we've done. Well, sometimes we don't remember what we've done. But we don't have to live with that guilt. For Christ died to pay for that guilt. Our sins are paid for. We are forgiven by God because of what Christ has done for us, not because of what we have done for Him. And that's the difference. So here's the crux of the whole argument. I mean, if you stayed with me so far, please don't miss this point, all right? It's very important. Religion, all religion, I don't care what religion it is, is a guilt-motivated life, ultimately. Religion by its very nature leads to guilt and motivates us by guilt. Christianity is a grace-motivated life. 100% different. Opposite. 
We seek to please God out of thanks for what he has already done for us, not to earn that, earn that absolution, because we can't. We don't have to avoid God because we feel guilty. We don't have to avoid church because we feel guilty. For he has already paid for that sin. It's as if God is standing up in heaven with open arms saying, Look, I, when we come running to him, he says, I already forgave you a long time ago. What took you so long? Don't hold back. Run to me. I've already forgiven you. I've already wiped the slate clean for all of eternity. Now, if that isn't worth celebrating, I don't know what is. That is Christianity. Christianity is a grace-motivated life. When we've been given so much, we cannot help but serve then, not out of a desire, you know, to atone for what we've done wrong, but as appreciation or thanks for what he has done for us. It changes the dynamic of everything in life. And we get a fresh start with God by the grace of Jesus Christ. May of last year, 2009, pastor and author John Ortberg and his wife Nancy were in Azusa, California because one of their kids was graduating from Azusa Pacific University and Nancy was going to speak at the commencement ceremonies. So they were invited to a special gathering of about 50 people people from the graduating class of 50 years ago, some new faculty members. And during that gathering, prior to commencement, John Wallace, the president of Azusa Pacific University, brought out three students who were graduating that year and told us that for the next two years, he says, that they were going to serve the poorest of the poor in India. They were leaving after their studies at at the university, after graduation. They were going to spend two years serving the poorest of the poor in in India. And they came, they thought, to be commissioned and sent out with the blessing of the university and in prayer. But then something happened that they did not know was coming. John Wallace, the president, turned to them and said, I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor, who is so moved by what you are doing that he has given a gift to this university in your name on your behalf. John then brought the first student up and he said, You are hereby forgiven your debt of $105,000. The kids started to cry. John turned to the next student. You've been forgiven your debt of $70,000. And then the third student, you are forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students had no idea that it was coming. It was all gone, wiped clean. They owed nothing to the university. John Ortberg writes, they were ambushed by grace. Ever been ambushed by grace? Blown away that somebody they don't even know would pay their whole debt? That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and me. He says the whole room was in tears. But that's what grace does to us. 
It really is. Grace ambushes us, and we live for God out of love and thanks, not guilt. We are freed from our debt. We owe nothing to God except the debt of thanksgiving, of gratitude. That's it. And that, my friends, is what it means to be a Christian. That's the essence of Christianity right there. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have paid our debt. We owe you nothing except our gratitude. And may we be motivated by your grace that has covered all of our sin through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In his name we pray. Amen.